great to be gathered together. I was thinking after the first service, that is exactly what my soul needed, was to come together with my church family and sing some songs and uh, just talk about the scriptures together. And so hopefully your soul will be blessed as well. If you're a guest with us here today, I just want to say a welcome, and we're glad that you're here. For whatever reason, you decided to come today. Uh, maybe you're just wondering what church was like at a school. Maybe you were uh, invited uh, by a friend or neighbor. Perhaps uh, they promised you they'd buy you lunch if you came. You don't really want to be here, but we're glad you're here. And uh, maybe uh, you're coming back to church after the new year. We're just, we're just glad to see you. I've seen some old friends and seen some new folks, and I want you to know that we're thankful you're here. And if you would take your worship program, on it there's a card that we we call a connection card. Our worship director, uh, Matt Biggie, mentioned that at the beginning of the service. If you would fill that out, you're, there's no pressure to do that. Um, you can take as long as you want. If you're planning to come back next week, you wonder if we're really weird. And if we fill out the card, we're going to show up in your living room. That is not the case. And so if you want to test us for a week and uh, figure that out first, that's totally fine. But when you're comfortable, um, if, you're, if today's your first time or if you haven't been here in a long time, I encourage you to fill that card out and take it out to the orange tent on your way out. And if you take it out to the orange tent, it's our first time guest tent. Uh, we've got a gift that we want to give you. And then in your name, we make a donation a gift to someone else uh, to try and impact their life so they can be connected to Jesus for life change, which is our hope for you, which is our hope for our whole church family. And uh, you've heard us probably mention a couple times, uh, Pastor John mentioned it, Elder Candidate, and Vern mentioned it, and JD, I think, mentioned it, and uh, talking about being a church family. And some people might sit there and be like, a family? That's weird. I don't even know the guy sitting next to me. Like, what are you talking about? And uh, that may be true for you, but there are many folks who've gotten involved and become members of this church, and uh, our desire is to know each other deeply and to live life together. And so I want to be candid with you and tell you, um, I didn't even want to preach as of yesterday. Uh, the sermon this morning, this past week, has been a really rough week. On uh, Wednesday, I got a phone call from a woman in my small group who doesn't usually call me. I'm really good friends with her and her husband, but doesn't usually call me, and I, I saw the, the number, and I answered it. It was Kim Moore, and uh, you already heard that uh, her husband passed away this past week, and the call that she said, you know, there's two police officers just at my door. My husband's been shot. Come to my house. And at that point, we didn't even know um, that Andy had passed away, um, but Andy has passed away, and so our church family is mourning. The Bible says that we should mourn with those who mourn, and I want you to know, guests, that that is happening, and so you're not wondering, what are, what are people talking about when you're out in the lobby? And um, we lost a great man of God uh, this past week. Those of you who knew Andy, and I know many of you did if you were in SYU or any of your kids were ever in SYU, he definitely made them food and probably shared his Bible knowledge with them and loved on them. And if you're ever in a small group with him or ever came in contact with him, just his big infectious smile, um, you knew Andy. And there's a picture of their, their family. That's Andy and his wife, Kim, and their two teenage kids, Caden and Allie. And so we, we miss him. And I want to just talk to you as a church family right now because we are a family. Um, and just say there's a passage of scripture uh, that I wanted to share with you before we even get to the message, and we'll start, we will start the series today, and we'll get to the message, but before we even get to that, in James chapter 1, it talks about the kind of religion that God's looking for, and he's not really looking for us just to gather together in a school, sing some songs, and uh, go about our way. Uh, we're supposed to live the one another's of scripture out together. He talks about widows and orphans in James chapter 1, and we do a great job as a church with orphans, and we have an orphan Sunday we celebrate every year, and we talk about that a lot, and that, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but we don't talk as much about widows, and, and we have a new one in our church. Uh, she's not the only one, but I want to just read you this verse from James chapter 1 and verse 27. It's a religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and we're in a time of distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so I just want to encourage you, church family, uh, don't be afraid because you don't know what to say uh, to reach out to the Moore family, to be praying for them, to love them, and oftentimes it's just being present, um, to be present with them. 
And so I want to encourage you to love on them and other widows you may have been afraid to do that with before in our church. And so I'm going to pray for the Moors. I'm going to pray for us as we open up the scripture. I know Andy. I knew him well. He loved the Bible. He would not want me talking about him this whole service. Um, So we're going to get into the scriptures together. But let me pray for us first. Our Father and our God, we come to you with heavy hearts. And we know that we can. You tell us that repeatedly in Scripture, that we can cast our cares upon you because you care for us, that we come to you with our burdens and we're weary and burdened and you'll take that from us and we need you to take that from us and we come weak. But we know this in our weaknesses that you're made known. And I pray that your strength would be seen, that you as our strong tower, as our refuge, as our righteousness, as the rock that won't move, as the God that we sing to, that went to the cross. We sing about leading us to the cross. Show us yourself, reveal yourself to us at the cross. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Redeemer of our souls. God, we come to you. We need you. And we need you in these moments. And I pray for the Moore family, that you would comfort them with a comfort because you're the God of comfort that only you can bring. And I pray you'd use your people to demonstrate your presence, that you'd use your people to demonstrate your care and your peace and your love. And I pray as we open up your word that you would speak to our hearts, that you'd give us a word from you today, the very word that we need in these moments. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 in just a moment. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 say, as we begin this series called Journey to the Cross, we talk about taking a journey together, and I believe that as we go through this passage together, we're going to start this passage in Mark chapter 11 and verse 1, and we're going to go all the way until Easter in Mark chapter 16 and verse 8. And I believe if you take this journey with us, that God's going to do a work in your heart in the process of going through this journey. And so as you're turning there and as you're just thinking about the idea of a journey, think through the different journeys you've been on in life. There's the metaphorical journeys that we go on. Uh, for instance, going to college. It's a journey. So you don't just go to college and then, hey, I'm at college. No, there's like a four-year, some of you five-year, some of you seven-year, whatever process that you go through college. And you have a, you have a child. That's, that's the beginning of a journey. It's not like, hey, we got a baby. We did it. We had a baby. No, now you're on a journey. Trust me. Marriage is a journey. We oftentimes talk about our spiritual lives as a journey that we go on. I know there's a church even here in town. It's called Journey Church. And some of you just think about life as a whole is a journey, but not even just metaphorically. Some of us, we do tangible, practical journeys that we go on. Some of us, we go, you know, some of you like to rock climb, and it's from the bottom of the rock to the top of the rock. It's a journey to get up through that. Some of you, are, you like to hike. Some of you even like to camp. You own a house, some of you, and you pay money to stay in a tent. It's crazy, but you like to do these things. Maybe you've been on a road trip or a vacation or something, and you go, you've been on a journey. And as I was thinking about starting this series, I was reminded that the last time I actually preached, we had a guest speaker on January 1st, last time I actually preached at our church was on Christmas Eve. And it was a great day. We mourn with those who mourn, but we rejoice too in what God has done. We had more people at our Christmas Eve service than we've ever had at a Christmas Eve service before. We had 18 people place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we were pumped. Yeah, we can give the Lord a hand. God is gracious. It's a new beginning. He gives people new life. And so he did that that day. It was exciting. We were pumped. The next day was Christmas. And the day after that, my wife and I decided that we were going to take the week off, and we took our kids to the mountains. And so we left Raleigh. We headed towards Boone, North Carolina, and we were going to the mountains with them just to relax. And it was a road trip. Now, we've got four little girls, and those of you who have been on road trips with kids can probably begin to imagine what this is like. I don't hear any oh, ooh from the crowds and just kind of some smiles out there. 
But we packed up, and I was telling my wife the first service, I was like, I don't know, we must have thought that groceries were cheaper in Raleigh than they would be in Boone, because for some reason we stuck a bunch of food in the car. Like, we loaded up all this food, we had Christmas presents, luggage, the kids were all packed in, like stuff all around them packed in. I made made that mistake one time on our trip there, that I opened up the back of the van without a spotter, and like stuff just came falling out of the back. It was like, we had all this stuff in there, and before we were about to leave, we're in the garage, I remember I came out and I said, does everybody have their coats? And it was like 60-some degrees at Christmas, I don't know if you remember that. And they they weren't thinking about their coats, we were going to the mountains. And of course, the one kid who doesn't have their coat is the one in the deepest, darkest spot in the back of the van, right? So she climbs out over, steps on the bread. Hey, you just stepped on my Christmas present. You know, like all that stuff happens. She goes to get her coat. We finally get in the car. We're five minutes away from our house. And one of them says, I've got to go to the bathroom, which is okay, because we were going to stop at Mimi and Papa's house and drop off the dog. Then we hop back in the car and we start to head out of Raleigh. We're 10 minutes into this drive. And I get asked a question. I bet you know what the question is. Are we there yet? That is exactly right. Why? We've all asked that question as kids. None of us like that question, but it always gets asked. And so I'm a sarcastic parent. I don't recommend this. This is not a message on parenting skills. But we're at about South Point Mall, and I'm going, yeah, this is what the mountains look like. Isn't it amazing? But we ask that question, are we there yet? Because we're so focused on the destination, we don't even think about the journey. But God does a process in the journey. There's something about even the trip, just the, even to get to where you're going, the process. And so we're going to start this study in Mark, in Mark chapter 11 and verse 1. And we're going to end in Mark chapter 16. You're like, I know how it ends. He's risen. <laughs> I know. But I believe that God wants to do a work in the process, in the journey. Now, I want to, I want to be candid with you, too, about my car ride with the kids. Uh, I don't want to portray us as like these like, amazing super parents. I'll be honest with you. I'd like to skip the journey a lot of times, too. And so we have a DVD player in that minivan, and so we popped on a movie. We're like, just stop touching each other, stop breathing so loud, you know, don't, don't fight, don't do anything, and we want to be left alone too. And so we pop the DVD on, guess what happens? They start fighting over the DVD. So again, with my sarcasm, I'm sorry that our feature film is not to your liking, kids. And then I say, when I was a kid, we didn't even have TVs and cars. And they're looking at me like, what did you do? Like, how did you survive? Like, we had to stare out the window and use our brains. Like, believe it or not, it's crazy. We were going to talk with one of our kids came to us the other day, uh, Ava, our second oldest. She came up to my wife and said, when you were a kid, did your parents put pictures of you on Facebook? And we were like, Facebook? So we didn't even have the internet. And they looked at us like, did you ride a brontosaurus to school? Like, you're old. That conversation didn't happen that van, but... Stuff happens in the, in the process, in the journey. So we're going to go on this journey together. We're going to start today. We're going to end on, Lord willing, on Easter Sunday uh, through this process. So don't ask me in February, are we done yet? No, we're not done yet. Here's my belief, though. I believe what you're going to see as we go through this, because it's actually chapter 11 in Mark, all the way through chapter 16, is one week in the life of Jesus. It's the Passion Week. In fact, some scholars call the book of Mark uh, a book that has an introduction, 10 chapters, to the Passion Week, which is the week of Jesus' journey to the cross. And what I think we're going to see is we're going to see how loved we are. Because we're going to see this man that's on a mission with this laser focus, fixes his eyes towards Jerusalem, and he heads this way to the cross. And nothing's going to stop him. Nothing's going to distract him because he had you. He's thinking about you. For the joy set before him, he's going to the cross. And I believe that we're going to become overwhelmed with Christ's love for us. And my hope and my prayer for each of you is those of you who go on this journey with us, and I know that, 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 that some people will leave and some people, new people will come to our church in this whole process, but those of you who are here today won't be the same people 
when we get to chapter 16, because my hope is that you will love Christ so much more than you ever have in your life because of the work that he does that you become overwhelmed with his love for you. And so today we're going to begin that journey in Mark chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. But for those of you who, who weren't with us last year, we don't usually start a sermon series in the last third of a book. Um, in the beginning of 2016, we started studying the book of Mark. And let me just give you like a, a two-minute overview of the entire book of Mark up until this point. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, it starts off with the first section where the very first verse says, this is the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which leaves anyone asking the question, so who is this Jesus? Who is God's Son? And that's what the first eight chapters of Mark are all about, is who is this Jesus? And he shows himself to be a Savior that comes and loves without limits. And by that, I mean he loves people that most of us would never naturally choose to love. He loves lepers, he loves sinners, he loves outcasts, he loves people in ways that we oftentimes wouldn't even think of as loving. He loves religious phonies in a way to confront their fakeness to call them to a real relationship with him. And so we see this love without limits, and then we see a Jesus who's, who's all-powerful, he's omnipotent, that he's stronger, stronger than disease, stronger than death, stronger than our enemy, stronger than anything. I'm like, wow, this loving God is so powerful. And he gets to this point where he asks, asks his closest followers, who do you say that I am? And then the, the spokesperson for that group, Peter, says, you are the Christ. It's a climactic verse in the book. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, now what do we do then? What do we do with that information? And then the second section of Mark starts. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 30 through Mark chapter 10, Jesus starts to tell us what that means, that it means he's going to go to the cross, that it means that if anyone wants to follow him, if anyone throughout human history, every person that calls the saint, anyone wants to follow, deny yourself, take up your cross, come after him. And Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through Mark chapter 10 tells us what that looks like. If you want to be great, you've got to be last. You, you, you want to be first, you've got to be servant of all. You deal with your sin. If you, you, whatever radical means that, that requires, you deal with your sin. You're repenting on a regular basis and following, denying yourself, coming after him, following him. And it gets to this place where then he's going to the cross. And we start this third section. It's this journey to the cross, a journey that I hope you'll go on with us. It starts in verse 1 of Mark chapter 11. If you have a Bible that has subtitles in it, it may say the triumphal entry there. It's, many of you have always known this passage of the triumphal entry. I'm going to tell you right now, it really wasn't that triumphal. And those who knew what a Roman triumphal entry was like would not have thought of it as triumphal. It was very humble. But look at what happens. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Now, Jesus is speaking. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. A colt or a young donkey, we find out. That's exactly what that means in one of the other gospel accounts. All the gospel accounts give this story. Which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them, tell him, the Lord needs it, and I'll send it back here shortly. Just borrowing it, just borrowing the donkey. They went and found a cold outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, their coats, outer garments, he sat on it. A makeshift saddle here. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches, branches a symbol of joy and salvation, branches they had cut in the fields. And now there's two groups here, it says in verse 9, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then verse 11, I love. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he came and he scoped out the temple. In the next passage we're going to look at, we're going to see why that was. But he was kind of like, it's late. I'll get to that tomorrow. Which makes me feel really good about some of the things I do sometimes. I got it. Tomorrow. And Jesus wasn't procrastinating there. He had a a plan. But what we're going to focus today is verses 1 through 10. And what you see there is that Jesus begins this journey to the cross. And this journey to the cross is ultimately a journey to lasting joy. It's a journey to lasting, and that's a key word if you're a note taker, I see some of you writing this down, to lasting joy. Not just a joy, not just like a happy moment, not just like, hey, baby's born, or your team wins a game, or you got a promotion at work. Lasting, deep, supernatural joy is what we're talking about. And it's something that very few people in our society experience. I was watching a video uh, on social media the other day. It was actually, it was, a, it was almost a miracle because it was a 15-minute video, and I don't know about y'all, but I have a threshold if I see a video on it. It's like, is it more than two minutes? Nope, nope. You know, through the thing. But there's this 15-minute video by a guy named Simon Sinek, and I don't know if you know uh, Simon Sinek or if you saw this. The video went viral. I think it had over 4 million views, and Simon Sinek is an author, a speaker, oftentimes on leadership, does a lot of TED Talks, and uh, not a Christian to my knowledge. The, the talk that, he, that I'm referring to does not come from a biblical worldview. I don't agree with everything that's in it. For those of you who will go up and, and look it up uh, later. But he's asked a question about working with millennials. Now, a millennial is someone uh, born about 1984 or later. I believe a lot of the stuff that he says in the video applies to not just those folks. So let's not, if you were born in 1983 or earlier, uh, don't think, yeah, those people are horrible. I think it applies to about 98.63% of us or so making up stats because most stats are made up. The majority of us, it applies to. And what he talks about in the video is why are millennials so hard to manage? Why are they so hard to lead? And he gives four different reasons that he believes that this is the case. And he starts in, in really emphasizing to leaders that you're going to have to make up for the things that parents didn't do and the problems that are in society and why they're so impatient and some of these things. And, and he talks about the problem, though, what's actually happening in our society, and this is what I want to share with you, is that many millennials that have a good job but there's no satisfaction in their job. They feel like they're not having an impact. And, and the suicide rates, he shared stats, suicide rates are going off the charts higher than they've ever been before. Many are dropping out of school to take time off because of depression and how big of a deal depression is. And, and he goes on and he says that the real, that, that's what's actually happening. He says, but best case scenario, best case scenario, okay? He, in his estimation, best case scenario is we have an entire generation of people that best case scenario, never experience deep, deep joy. But everything's just fine. And then what, what really made that stick with me is what he was then talking, and the interviewer wasn't saying anything, but he, just, he kind of started having a fake conversation. He's like, you know, it's like you say to someone, how's your job? It's fine. Same as yesterday. It's fine. How's the relationship? It's fine. It's fine. I, I want to share something with you. Jesus didn't go to the cross so you could be just fine. Those of you who are here for Christmas Eve, you may remember the message is about why did Jesus go to the cross. I shared three different verses. He went to the cross from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, to give his life as a ransom for many. He went to the cross, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, to seek and save that which was lost. He went to the cross. Did you get John chapter 10, verse 10? He came, he gave his life so that we could have life and have it abundantly. He came so that we could have a deep joy. I want to be honest with you. Just in my transparency, 
After preaching at the funeral uh, for Andy on Friday, yesterday I was serious about not preaching this message because I thought, are you a hypocrite, a joy, and you're mourning, and should you really talk about joy? And, and even when I left the graveside uh, yesterday, I got a text message from someone else who had just had a cancer surgery about somebody who had cancer surgery. Call them up at the hospital. And so I realized there's, other, there's lots of problems. So how can you talk about joy? And there's, there's, there's all this stuff. But then you look at what is, what is biblical joy? And we go through not just this passage, but you go through the, the whole Bible, and you start looking at what is joy? The, the greatest book ever penned on joy, if you want to talk about this topic a little bit more, is the book of Philippians. It was written by a guy while he was in jail. James says in James chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That is so crazy. That is crazy. What are you talking about? I promise you, I know godly people, like people that they are, they are walking in the Spirit and God is working in their lives and they probably are praying continually. But I don't know any person that gets news like what Kim shared with me on Wednesday and is rejoicing. So what is James talking about here? Because God knows that. James writes these words. That you can have joy even in your tears? We're talking about a deep, lasting joy that's not based just on our circumstances? While you're in prison, you can write the book on joy. Then when you have cancer and you lose the job, and I'm not saying when you lose your job, you're like, yes, I'm so glad there's a trial. That's ridiculous talk. No, I don't know anyone who does that. I'll tell you, I don't do that. It doesn't mean you can't have lasting joy, real deep joy, even in that. And we get a glimpse of it here in this passage of Scripture. We, we get a, a peek at what's happened here. And there's this crowd that's with Jesus. And John lets us know, because all, all four gospel accounts actually talk about the triumphal entry. And you get a little bit of different details as you go to each one. Luke tells us, you know, even the stones will cry out. And John tells us that what's just happened is that Jesus has raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. They've just gone through a terrible time of mourning and distress. And then there's this great victory. But poor Lazarus has to come back to this place. And these crowds are coming around, and they're, they're just excited about They probably don't fully understand who Jesus is. But they're rejoicing in it. And go back in your passage. You look back at what's happened here. It says, as they approach, approach Jerusalem, so they're coming, and this is his entrance. This is the beginning of the week. And it says that Jesus sent two of his disciples. He doesn't name them, which I find interesting. And a lot of scholars talk about it, and they're like, well, it's probably Peter and John, which I think, well, what if it wasn't Peter and John? The poor other guys. Peter and John get like all the press, don't they? What if it was Bartholomew? Did you know there's a disciple named Bartholomew? Did you even know that? Or what about, the office? sometimes he's called Thaddeus in the New Testament, but his name's Judas, but not Iscariot. Wouldn't it stink to, I'm Judas. No, 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 not that, not that guy. Yes, one of the disciples. Don't get a lot of press. I wonder if in heaven they said, Mark, you didn't even write our names down. Peter and John get all the credit. But you've got these two guys that are not even named. We don't even know which disciples it is. Maybe it's Philip. I don't know who it is. Two of, the, two of these guys. And Jesus tells them exactly what to do. And what we see when you look at the red letters of this passage, what you see is that Jesus, even when things aren't going the way that they're going to expect, even when things are changing, he's speaking. He is totally omnipotent, all-powerful, totally omniscient, 
all-knowing. He knows everything that's going to happen. Because he says, hey, you're going to go into town. You're going to find this young donkey that's going to be tied up. And if somebody says, he knows somebody's going to say something. If somebody says something to you, then say this. And so then they go into the town and they find this young donkey. And we don't know exactly what a donkey cost at, at this time, but we know in Egyptian culture, second century Egyptian culture, not too long after this, that a donkey cost, a young donkey like this, somewhere between two months and 10 months wages. So that's like your car. So imagine you go in the parking lot, two guys you don't know are getting in the car. You go, hey, what are you doing? The Lord wants it. Okay, fill her up. <laughs> like that's what happens here. But what's going on in Jerusalem at this time, it's the Passover. And so many people estimate that the population of Jerusalem at this time would triple. There's about, some people say, 2.7 million people here at this time. Josephus, uh, about, 60, or about 30 years after this, uh, estimates that there were 255,000 lambs sacrificed. There'd be about 10 person to a lamb. So a, a conservative estimate is there's about 2.7 million people. There's tents everywhere. Every inn was full. All the houses were full. And everybody who was a, a resident of Jerusalem was forced to have incredible hospitality. And so they see these guys coming. They go to say, the Lord wants it. Okay, bring it back. Clean her up. I don't know what they said at that moment. but They let them have it. Teacher, the Jesus, the rabbi, the Lord, maybe they knew him. Maybe he had healed them. We don't know who they were or why, but they say, okay. And so then they take this young donkey and they have this makeshift saddle. This is a triumphal entry. Now, Roman triumphal entry, you'd come in on your war horse and, and you'd have prisoners of war, captives, as like your trophies that you were coming into town and everyone say how wonderful you are. Here's Jesus on a donkey with a makeshift saddle, not a war horse, and he's not coming with his captives. In fact, the very people that are shouting his praises are the captives he's going to set free from their sin. And many of them don't even know what's happening. One of them is going to commit suicide, Judas Iscariot. Some of these people might be the very people that in a few days are chanting, crucify him. And here are chanting, Hosanna. Father, forgive them. I don't know what they do. He knows. And what Jesus is doing here is he's presenting himself as king. There's an interesting thing that's happened through the book of Mark. Through the book of Mark so far, uh, maybe if you've read Mark before or if you were with us in 2016, you've seen this, where Jesus will like heal some guy. It'll be an amazing miracle. And then he says, hey, let's keep that between us. Don't go tell anybody. Have you seen that? It seems so weird. Like he tells us to go and share the gospel with people, but he keeps telling these people, hey, here's, I did this amazing miracle. Shh, it's just between us. Don't tell anybody. Then they go tell, by the way. Because how, how can you hold it? But it's what scholars call the messianic secret. That's over. He's done with that now. It is no secret because what was going on before is that Jesus didn't want himself to be forced to be the kind of king they wanted him to be. You see it in John chapter 6. They wanted to make him king by force. Isn't that convicting? Because many of us make Jesus into who we want him to be. And Jesus wouldn't allow that. What Jesus is doing, he's presenting himself as king here. And the reason why we know that is because what he's actually doing in this passage is not stated specifically here in Mark, and it's alluded to, it's actually mentioned specifically in some of the other accounts. But he's, he's fulfilling a prophecy from 500 years earlier. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, and you can study that on your own, but I'll read it to you. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation to set the captives free. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples even say they didn't realize it in the time, but they look back, they realize what was happening. He's presenting himself as king. And then you see what happens. You go in and you see these people. There's a crowd in front. It says in verse 9, there's those who went ahead and those who followed. And they shouted. Now a lot of scholars believe that the way that they shouted was more like a chant. 
Like the ones in the front would say something, and then the ones in the back would chant back. And they go back and forth, and they're chanting a Hallel praise, a Hallel psalm. It's Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, that would be shouted during the Passover. To the Passover, if you don't know the Old Testament, what happened in the Passover is they're celebrating when the Lord passed over the firstborn Israelite kids because of blood that was put on the doorpost. They were, they were celebrating their deliverance. How ironic. They don't even realize it yet because they're, they're just starting the journey to the cross. They can't, even though Jesus has said it specifically, we know they're blown away by it when he goes to the cross. But it's the ultimate deliverance because the blood that's shed on the cross, that God would be gracious with us. And they're chanting, Hosanna. And so it's probably the first group says, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then the, the back group then comes back. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then back to the front. Hosanna and the highest. And then back and forth. They're just chanting this as they're coming into this town. And they're, they're celebrating. It's where we get this glimpse of joy. Some of you would say, well, no, it's just it's praise. It's songs. It's like what we were singing earlier. It's like Hosanna in the highest. Lead us to the cross. Lord, you're, you're the one. You're my rock. You're the redeemer. Whatever songs we sing. Mighty to save. All those songs. But you realize that singing praise is a completion of joy, right? See, a lot of us, we just think of praise, well, it's like what you're supposed to do, and it's worship, it's not really my thing, or whatever some of you have these thoughts of. I want to read you a quote by C.S. Lewis. And for those of you who don't know, C.S. Lewis, he's oftentimes thought of as a great Christian thinker, but early in his life, he actually had a real hard time with God. He was not a believer, and one of his problems was he thought God was vain because he demanded worship. But he talks about the flaw in his thinking when he says this. I thought of in terms of, talking about praise, I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Then he goes on and he says, the world rings with praise. And he gives a bunch of examples. He says, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, Players praising their favorite game. Praise of the weather. Depends on which day or which hour if you're in North Carolina. Wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historic personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians. (laughs) He lived in a different generation than us. (laughs) Or scholars. And he said, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised the most while the cranks and misfits and malcontents people who didn't have joy praised the least and he went on later to say I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment and you think about it you, you see something you enjoy if I, if I look at my wife and I think well she's beautiful that, that's a, it's great but there's something about telling her. It's not just to compliment her. It's not just to honor her. It's like there's something that happens in that moment. Some of you out here, you're fans. I see my friend Floyd here. I know that he's, he's converted me into an NC State fan. Sorry, Tar Heels, I understand. But I've been with them. I've been with them. Got a guy in the back raising his hands. Yeah, see, you're ready to praise, right? Your team scores a touchdown, as rare as that can be for us, right? Hands go up. It's like the universal sign of victory. You don't just, oh, that's good. Got that one done. You and Sears, I'll give you some props here. Are you watching a basketball game? NC State people are like, ooh, no, don't, 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 don't go there. <laughs> You're watching that a little while ago, 50-some points, oh, man. I bet most of you are like, man, that's what we do. Maybe a couple of you were. <laughs> but most, it's like you yell for your team. There's something about the yelling 
that completes the enjoyment. Some of you are going to watch football games today. That's what you're going to do. You're just going to pick a team because most of our teams are gone now, right? You're just going to pick a team. It's like, all right, the cheese is kind of weird. Let's do that. So you go with it. Don't pick the Cowboys. My wife will like that. I don't do that. If you have a meal at a restaurant, it's good. But isn't it better when you put it on social media? <laughs> There's a reason why we do this. It completes our joy. I first saw this C.S. Lewis quote in a John Piper sermon. John Piper has a concept that's called Christian hedonism, which is controversial in and of itself because hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. Most of us naturally assume that the pursuit of pleasure is sinful. Doesn't that say something about us? And what Piper is doing in his sermon, he actually talks about how people like C.S. Lewis and Oprah who couldn't, who abandoned faith because she couldn't believe in a God who was a jealous God. Brad Pitt, so they can't have his boyhood faith because God's an egomaniac because he's demanding that we tell him he's the best. And what Piper points out with Christian hedonism is this, is that you actually get the greatest joy when you're doing the thing that God, God actually wants your greatest good when he tells you to praise him because you'll never really have lasting joy if you don't praise him. And so he has this famous quote. He says that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And what he's doing, what he's talking about, is what, what we're seeing expressed in this passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 11. Here comes our deliverer. Now, they, some of them are messed up and how that, they're just thinking deliverer from Rome. They don't understand who he really, he's the real deliverer. And so they're so, and Lazarus has just been raised from the dead, and they're so excited about him. Hosanna, which means save us. Save us now. They're expressing their joy. And so for us, it's not just, you know, when you see your spouse and you think that they look good or you have a great meal or a baby's born or your team wins or the, you get a promotion and you're excited. There's something about saying it. And so you've been saved, redeemed from your sins. Those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you realize that he went to the cross and you want to talk about whether you can have joy in difficult circumstances. I don't know what you know about the cross, but it's bloody and nasty and gruesome and horrible. And he was there to take upon the wrath of God for you like Pastor John said earlier, we've got a, a perfect God and we're not perfect. I don't know all of your stories. I know you're not perfect. Because the Bible says we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so the only one that ever was perfect was God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, took that wrath upon himself. And do you know what the scriptures say? It was joy. In Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, for the joy set before him. Keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith. We talk about this journey to the cross. Who for the, that's a weird word in this verse because think about what happens after. For the joy set before him endured the cross. That's a shameful way to die. Reserved for the worst criminals. Polite Jews wouldn't even say crucifixion in a conversation. It was too offensive. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. For what is the joy then? What is the joy? The joy is you being reconciled to a holy and righteous God as he takes upon the wrath. What does that joy look like then? Well, what does Jesus look like on the cross? He's not shouting words of praise. Oh, this is amazing. I love this. This is so fun. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just go to the words of the cross. But there's joy. Even in the pain, he is a man of sorrows. Even in the sorrow, in the grief, in the distress. Because ultimately, it's so that you, you can be reconciled to God. So how do, how do we experience this joy? This joy that gets talked about all through Scripture, this joy. I'll show you. You talk about in, in the morning, 
This is a verse that I saw yesterday in, in Psalm 30, verse 11. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. How can we have this kind of joy? Well, when you take this journey on the cross, you see how loved you are. Let me read you a passage of scripture about God's love. In Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, tell me about his love. Okay. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Think about what that means. Anything in all of creation. Sinful things, not sinful things. See, a problem for many, the reason why many believers in Jesus Christ are depressed, I'm not saying all of us, I'm not trying to be a clinician here, I understand the unique circumstances for everybody, but many of us are not experiencing the joy that God has for us because we settle for lesser joys. And it's not wrong. It's not wrong to be excited about your team scoring a touchdown. It's not wrong for you to celebrate that you had a baby. You should. Like all those things. You enjoy those things. But when those joys become the ultimate joy and the place of the ultimate joy, when we exchange creation for the creator, there's no way we can experience this deep joy. There's nothing in creation that can separate you from the love of Christ. This is in Christ Jesus our Lord that is demonstrated when he goes to the cross. And so the question for us is, it got to be this. You've got to be asking yourself this if you're thinking through this message. How? How do I experience this? Well, this is actually not something you do. You don't just decide, I'm going to have joy. That'd be like walking up to a tree and going, that's a good-looking tree. I think I'm going to throw some fruit on it. No, it's a fruit tree. No, it's not. It's an oak tree. You just stuck fruit on it. That's what oftentimes we do with our religion, by the way. So, oh, I should have joy. I'm going to start. I'm going to put on a fake smile. No, that's 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 not that's not what we're talking about here. Joy is a fruit of the spirit. Galatians chapter five, verse twenty-two. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy. It's one fruit, by the way, with different flavors: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. The joy is a natural outcome of being connected to the vine. How do you want to bear fruit? Being connected to the vine. The vine is Christ. John chapter fifteen. You can do nothing apart from me. You'll just be pinning fake fruit under trees. Apart from abiding in me. So how does that happen? Well, I'll, t- I'll share with you. My daughter said I could share this with you. I was talking with one of my daughters the other day, and I was asking her, I said, what do you want 2017 to be like different than 2016? She said, I want people to see Jesus in me. No, she didn't say that because I'm a pastor, and she had to say it to me. We were just talking in the privacy of her bedroom. We were just chatting through, and she said this answer. I said, you know, do you know how that happens? And she goes, no. And we had talked about, you know, praying at, at meals at school and doing some of those things. It doesn't happen because you pray at school. It doesn't happen because you have a one and you tell them the gospel. It doesn't happen just because, you know, I was supposed to read my Bible, so I checked that off my Bible. You know how it happens? It happens by abiding in the vine. What does that mean? That's like church talk. It's like saying lean into God or trust. What does that even mean? Well, it's talking about a relationship. And all relationships take time. You will not, just by coming to this church service, be abiding in the vine or coming every week for the next until Easter. It means you've got to spend time with Jesus. You spend time in his word. What does he say? Read other verses that talk about his love. See places where he's demonstrated through. Read the gospel accounts of him going to the cross. What is he saying? Luke, that he says different here in Mark. And, and what does he want to say to you? Read the book on joy in Philippians. You've got to be with him and be, be in prayer because prayer is really dependence. And it's like as you're with him, and don't talk the whole time. I'm not saying just pray. Pray these requests. Just, just, you've got to be See, it's the journey. But we were, are you there yet? Are we there yet, Jesus? Can I just be, can I pray this prayer and you make it happen? So we just want to skip all that stuff. Don't ask me if we're there yet. We're not, none of us are there yet, okay? 
We're in a journey. We're in a process. But he, he did it so you could have a lasting, lasting joy. Do you have that kind of joy? Because he offers it to you through his son, Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, you should know Jesus as your Savior. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you've got to cultivate that relationship. It doesn't just stop with that decision. Life change is for a lifetime. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you today, and uh, we pray. We pray to you because you're the only one that can do this work in us, and some of us are ready and some of us aren't, and, and I realize that. Some of us are hurting and mourning. Will you turn our mourning into joy, not because we're excited about circumstances in our life, not because we're excited about the loss of loved ones or cancer or marriages that are struggling or loss of job, but because we have you. We can have joy in you. Remind us of the joy of our salvation. Bring us to the fruit of repentance. Give us the fruit of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And patience, we are so impatient as a people. I know I am. And kindness and goodness. Help us to mourn with each other. Help us to rejoice with each other. And God, complete our joy as we sing to you in these moments. Just to complete the joy of rejoicing in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.